Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 308 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. How's it going? I'm Charles Max Wood from devchat.tv. Quick shout out about Ruby Remote Conf. Go check it out. Uh, we also have a uh, special guest this week, and that's Michael Linsar. G'day. Down from Australia, Sydney, Australia. Yeah, we made him get up early this morning. We're so rude. Um, <laughs> Michael, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Oh, geez. I hate this bit. Uh, but oh, okay. I can do it for I'm, you. Yeah, well, <laughs> I wrote the mail gem. It's probably the thing I'm most known for in the Ruby community uh, and rewrote Action Mailer as part of that. That was way back in the dark ages of Rails back in like 2010. And since then, I started a development company called Reinteractive and we do a lot of Ruby on Rails development around the world, uh, predominantly with our developers in Australia and some over in the USA and Americas. And yeah, we do a whole bunch of community work and stuff like that, but we can go into that a bit later and getting new people onto Ruby on Rails and things like that. But I love programming in Ruby. I still get to program in Ruby. I've started three or four companies that are based around Ruby on Rails products. And uh, yeah, it's been great to finally, you know, get to get in touch with the rogues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, thank you for the mail, Jim. It is amazing. <laughs> I was going to say, Dave, were you around for the Dark Ages when we used the T-mail, Jim? No, I think I was still in diapers. Wait. Oh, uh, now you're making me feel <laughs> old. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you sign up today using the show's link, that's hired.com slash rubyrogues, you can get double the normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at hired.com slash rubyrogues. I was going to say, Dave, were you around for the Dark Ages when we used the T-Mail gem? No, I think I was still in diapers. Wait. Oh, now you're making me feel <laughs> old. But yeah, the, the, the mail gem was definitely a breath of fresh air when it came around, I'll tell you that. Yeah, there was a funny story than that, actually. we So, to, to put in context, I started mm -hmm. using Rails around 2000 and six i think or 2007 it would have been uh just after the 
zero point releases. Yeah, you know, I think mm-hmm. I sort of came in about one point one or something like that, or maybe point nine. Anyway, and the first project that I built was this uh, relationship management system. It did it handled you know contact database system, right? Right. And one of the parts of it was that we would uh, import or allow the user to send an email to the person on the system. So you could actually write the email within the platform to that person and send them the email. And that was working fine with Rails and Tmail. It was, everything was going well. And there was a few things and I'd sort of patch them and I'd send them back to the then maintainer of Tmail and he'd go, thank you very much. And we'd merge it. This was back in the days where you had to do SVN requests and that sort of thing on uh, SourceForge, which was a lot of fun. RubyForge at the <laughs> Ruby time. Forge. RubyForge. Remember RubyForge? Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> so uh, all of our, all of my uh, contributions were being done via patch files, via email to a guy who didn't really speak much English. And it was a lot of, a lot of fun back and forth. And then we built another feature in which was we let the system capture the incoming email. So you could see the email thread within the content management system. I'm sorry, customer management system. And one day I discovered this feature in quotes of Tmail, which was if Tmail ever received a malformed message, it wouldn't just ignore it. It would just crash. So you'd just get a Ruby exception, right? And I had this brilliant idea, which was, well, the only people that will be sending malformed emails are going to either be People that are doing it by hand, which is pretty rare these days, obviously. It's not many people that type into a mail server directly and send their email. Or spammers, because that's the way they get past mail filters, is by routing a malformed email. Because in the mail RFC, if you look it up, 2822 or even 822, the original RFC, it says that if you can't parse an email, you must, in capitals, let that email through, right? Oh, and not God. attempt to process it anymore. So I go, sweet, I've just found the ultimate like mail parser. This is fantastic. So I just tell, in my code, I basically have this begin rescue end block that goes begin, tmail, parse, message, rescue, anything, nil, end, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> wow. I go, this is awesome. This is the best <laughs> spam detection tool ever. And I turn this on at our spam rate basically went to zero in the system. And I, I, I thought I was a real genius, right? And I publicly, I put this live and all this sort of stuff. And about three days later, my boss comes in and goes, uh, Michael, none of the boss's emails are getting through. Like we can't, we can't find any, no matter what she sends, nothing appears in the system. And I didn't have the correlation in place and I didn't really understand that it might have something to do with this. And anyway, I'm digging and digging. And then all these other reports of different people who can't get emails from really important people start laying on my desk. I'm going, there's there's something common here. And I dig, 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 dig. And then the thing I found was that all of those people were using Outlook. And Outlook doesn't create well-formed mails. So it creates malformed messages. So then Tmail was just basically losing the plot on every one of them, deleting all their email from the system. So I had to roll that back. So at that point, I went, okay, that's that's it. We need to rewrite a mail. I'll just rewrite the mail library. I mean, how hard could that be, right? <laughs> right, right, yeah. Oh, my Lord. I spent better part of a year getting version 0.1 done. It was 
And the really funny thing was I didn't really know how to program Ruby at that point. I was just sort of doing basic CRUD model view controller stuff in, in Ruby on Rails. So it basically taught me how to program because I didn't have any computer science background or anything like that. I was just a, a, a HTML hack that had fought, found this blog post by DHH that went whoops about 20 times a minute in building a blog post. <laughs> and I just whoops. followed that. <laughs> it was such whoops. a good video. <laughs> whoops. It was a, some video, yeah. If the listeners haven't seen it, you need to go and Google and watch the original Rails release video. It's um, It was incredible at the time. Anyway, so I'd just been following that and making it work. And then I went, well, heh, I can do that. So therefore, I must be able to program a whole mail gem. I mean, surely. So that's how I taught myself how to code was write the mail gem. And then I uh, messaged the guy who was maintaining T-Mail and said, look, I'm going to release this new gem. Do you mind? He's like, hell no. Here, have the full commit rights to RubyForge for T-Mail. Good luck. And he, and he just disappeared. So that should be, <laughs> in retrospect, that should have been a warning. But anyway, there you go. That's great. So, you know, at the beginning of this talk, I thought you were going to say that they were all just telnetting into the SMTP server to send mails. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, those are some crazy executives you got. <laughs> no, no, this is, yeah, we're a little bit later than that time. That was earlier in my career. But, yeah. <laughs> But that's awesome. You know, I love seeing how, um, you know, even Rails in general, you know, it started out as just a core part of the Basecamp model and then DHH extracted it and then just open sourced it. So I love these stories where a application or a gem or some kind of plugin goes from being a part of a greater application. It's extracted open source and just gets used so widely. So that's really awesome. Yeah, I think it's also an interesting point in that uh, you don't, and this is probably a message to the more you know junior developers out there. You don't need permission to go and write a fundamental part of a programming language. And you might think that it's all done and it's all been finished, but it really hasn't. There's so much out there that needs doing, and you just need the sort of you know, I don't know attitude to believe you can do it and just do it. There's no rules around this. If you build something that works, people will use it. And I mean, I'm I'm actually looking for someone to work with me on the mail gem. I mean, since, since it was first written, obviously there's a lot of contributors now and uh, it's, you know, no longer just me working on the mail gem at all. There's a lot of other people that are, are working on it, you know, Jeremy from uh, Basecamp has been doing a lot of work, keeping it up to date and maintaining it. And, you know, over the years, I've kept going in. It was funny. I used to do these things called Rails Camps. I'd go to Rails Camps, which is a mini conference that we have in Australia where basically 50, well, then it grew to about 300 or 200 people would go to a remote location with basically no internet and program for the weekend. And, uh, that would be when I'd go and do Ruby mail patches. So you'd see the patch commit queue be nothing, 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 nothing. And then for one weekend in July, it'd be like 200 <laughs> <Nice>. commits. <laughs> but I'm not doing that well, these days. So other people have taken over. But yeah, if there's a young or newish developer, you know, that's uh, wants a break, get in touch with me and, and I'll work with them and we'll get them helping me maintaining mail and 
perhaps can turn into a gig for them. But yeah. One thing that I just want to call out, and this is something that I do. I've been doing these, my Ruby or my JavaScript story uh, episodes. I'm actually spinning them off now onto their own feeds for their own um, shows. Of course, if you're subscribed to this feed, you'll still get them because I'm just going to turn this feed into the Ruby feed and the Ruby rogues only will be its own other feed. But anyway, um, and, and that is, is that, yeah, I mean, you don't have a traditional CS background. You're pretty new at programming and you go write <laughs> this fundamental tool for Ruby. I mean, it's just kind of like, whoa, right? You know, and, and I remember hearing about the mail gem coming out and thinking, yeah, he sounds like a genius developer that's been doing this for 50 years. But it turns out that's not who you were, right? <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Not at all. It was many, many, many hours of just, you know, I mean, the way I wrote the mail gem really was I was sitting there. I mean, Rick Olson, I think, a bit later popularized this idea of readme-driven development, uh-huh. uh, you know, which is also sort of like, wait, what, waterfall? We're back to that. But, you know, it, it was how I wrote the mail gem. I basically was writing my application. I went, well, if I had a library that actually sent email the way that <clears> – I'll just start that again, editor. If I actually – so the way I wrote the mail gem was – I sat down in my project and I looked and I thought to myself, if I actually had a mail gem that would send an email the way I wanted it to, how would I code that? You know, how would I be typing that in my program? And I just wrote, well, I'd go mail equals mail do or mail new do. And then I'd specify some form from and to and subject and I'd add a body and then I'd end the block or I'd have the option of just going mail equals mail new. And then I go mail dot subject equals mail dot from equals mail dot blah equals. So I wrote out how I'd want to use the library. And then I went, okay, that, that mail do thing and passing a block, that looks pretty cool. wonder how I do that. Oh, is that what that block thing is in Ruby that everyone keeps talking about? Oh, okay. But how do I actually get the things in there? And then I went and looked up the, Ruby pickaxe book and I found out there was a thing called yield and like literally that's where I was starting from. And oh wow. I created a class library called mail.rb and uh I figured out that if you put def space self dot new or self dot generate or whatever the message was that that would be called on the class which means you wouldn't have to instantiate the variable and then I uh, instantiate a an instance. And then I went, oh, that's what instantiate means. I mean, that's where I started when I wrote the mail jam. So you don't have to be a really smart programmer to program some of this stuff. Having said that, don't probably try and create like MongoDB from scratch. But, <laughs> you know, the really, cool thing about, <laughs> the really cool thing about mail is that there's all these RFCs out there. So all I'd do is I'd open up the RFC and I'd read it and I'd go, Okay, so I need this thing called two, and it is one or more email addresses. So that means two has to be an array. Okay, well, I'll make that an array. And I mean, that's how I went. And then six months later, you have a mail gem. I mean, that's how you build stuff, right? That's awesome. Um, I'm going to transition us maybe a little bit more forcefully than I just don't see a clear transition <laughs> to this, but uh, it, you're, you're writing a book. I'm writing a book because that's what you do when you get old and no one listens to you anymore, right? That's right. No. Yeah, I'm writing a book. It's called Confidence Software. Uh, it's sort of my learnings from 
programming for the last decade. I'm in a pretty unique position, I think. Pretty unique. That's a good word, isn't it? You're either unique or you're not. But I'm in a, <laughs> a position that not many others are have been in. And that is, you know, in the past 10 years, I've worked on, touched on, played with, coded on, handled clients about probably close to 200 applications. And that's a lot. And there's not a lot of people that have had that sort of experience. And it's taught me a lot of things about what actually matters when you're writing a software project for someone who has to pay for it. And, uh, yeah, I ended up calling it confident software because of that. Now I want to jump in, I guess we kind of talked a little bit about this, but I kind of want to jump in on the fifth point because, uh, you talked about like the read me driven design and, and, you know, you've got design first, build second. And my brain yeah. immediately goes, wait a minute, isn't that waterfall? Aren't we past that? Yeah. And, you know, it, it's really funny because in the chapter, I, I mean, I clarify that, right? We're not talking about doing a full specifications document mm-hmm. up front. But the thing about software development that a lot of developers don't get, I guess, when they're starting out as a consultant or or even just in a company when they've got stakeholders. Look, I mean, at the end of the day, the only reason any of us have a job is in programming is because someone sees a cash benefit in taking money that they've spent digging up out of the ground and converting it into something or whatever into dollars and then handing the dollars to us because they believe that by doing so, they can dig stuff up out, of, out of the ground faster, right? And the only real reason any of us have a job is because we can convert some sort of a concept into a piece of software that increases profitability or productivity or decreases cost or makes something more efficient. That's the only reason we get to program. We're not programming because, you know, it's some beautiful thing. Just one second. Yeah, and, you know, the whole idea of the waterfall model or design, you know, don't get it wrong. You still have to have some kind of understanding of what's required or what your end goal wants to be. Um, You know, there's been several applications where I've started off and, you know, didn't really have a clear picture of what the end was going to look like. So I probably started that application over multiple, multiple times. So you still have to have some kind of idea of um, what it's going to be. Yes. Yeah, that's right. The design first, build second maxim is about if I'm a customer and I've got a developer there, and I say, I want a web application that does blah. That in itself is the first step of design, right? What we normally mean by this is produce a wireframe for it. Mm-hmm. Get that wireframe available for everyone to look at and talk about and see that thing sitting there. And if you can put it on the web so all the stakeholders can get to it even better. Because there's an old saying that, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? You can put a wireframe and a single wireframe document together and get so much more agreement throughout the whole project than if you deliver a 200-page Word document that no one reads anyway. So you're much better off 
doing a little bit of design up front going, well, what do we want this thing to look like? How do we want it to operate? What are the important uh, user experience components here? What's the actual information we're trying to get across to the user? Create up a wireframe, even to the point where once the wireframe's made, you can even get some uh, quick design, visual design element into it to pretty it up a bit, which will then help you win the project or it will help you uh, get agreement around this because the people go, oh, there's the wireframe. Oh, look, there's my logo. Actually, could you make the logo bigger? It's usually the first thing anyone says. (laughs) (laughs) Had to get that in there. So, um, yeah, that design first, build second. But when you think about it, all of the uh, behavior-driven development and test-driven development is design first, build second, right? You're not, you don't go out and, and, and if you do it that way, you end up with better code because you know what the end result is that you're after and then you're coding to achieve that end result. You're not coding randomly and then hoping at some point like a thousand monkeys typing on a computer that you end up with Hamlet. Uh, you're, you're going for a very specific target which focuses the attention more and actually results in a higher chance of achieving that target within the budget and time restrictions. Yeah, I just wanted to chime in because, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, we all do this, whether we're thinking it through or not, you know, and you mentioned TDD as a way of doing this, but even the people who don't TDD, I mean, they still sit there and think about the problem and then think about how they're going to solve it. And then they start coding against it. And so there, there is that upfront work that's being done. It's just whether or not you write it down. And in a lot of cases, yeah. if you're working with other people, you need to write it down so that they know what you're doing and they know how they can interface with it, which I guess is your second point. Communication is king. But yeah, I mean, you're going to do it one way or the other. So why not do it in a somewhat disciplined manner so that you can at least capture the important parts? That's right. And also, once you produce that wireframe as a first step, it does a huge number of things. So this is a tip even for my competition out there you know if you're developing rails applications or software for clients doing design first is a really you know it's a key point in communication it de-risks the project it gets everyone buy-in uh, it forces the client to actually come up with what they want as opposed to having assumed features and targets throughout the whole platform that oh yeah of course i wanted a link there that when you click it, it opens up an in-place editor that allows you to modify anything on the page, including the CSS, and uh, save that automatically back to the database and have that available to anybody. Of course I wanted that. I mean, that's given, isn't it? Don't all <laughs> web applications do that? You know, it's like, and you go, well, no. You go, oh, well, I thought you were a good development company. And you're like, oh, please, you know, you start again. <laughs> so well, you're better off getting those things out in the open early and red flag them and and come up to the client and say, look, we can build that one and that one for this budget, but we can't do that other one over there. So which one of those three do you want? You haven't ever had a client that uh, you went to them and said, yeah, I can solve your problem. And they said, how much? And you just named some random price and they said, okay, here's the money. Pretty much. I've had that. Yep. Oh, well, I never did when I was consulting. <laughs> they always wanted to know what I was going to do to solve the problem. <laughs> no, the vast, I, I was just pulling your chain. That's fine. No, all of our clients want to know that they go the other way. They go, uh, I want you to solve this problem. We go, yep. And they go, how much? And we go, uh, look, it's an estimate, but 
$100,000 and they go, okay, good, we'll do it for exactly $100,000. Can you please send us a fully legal statement of work detailing every feature you want that you're going to deliver and we'll pay you only $100,000 and that's it. And we're like, well, no, that's not how we work. Yeah. You know? um, but why can't you work like that? Why can't you give us an exact estimate? You know, this is a constant communication problem yeah, with absolutely. clients, which sort of leads to the first point of the maxims, which is, you know, desired features will always exceed any budget, right? So we have to get our clients. And this is actually that first point is the reason I'm writing this book because I'm trying to provide something where I can give it to a client and say, look, read this. And once they read it, they go, oh, well, it's written in, in black and white, so it must be true. So therefore, Michael must be saying this, you know, the right thing. And they sort of skip the idea that I wrote the book. But because it's written, it, it adds more weight to the fact that, look, the features that you want will exceed whatever budget you can throw at it. I don't care how rich you are. I mean, there's that classic case of the guy that invented Ubuntu that was trying to build a mobile operating system or something. I can't remember what he was doing, but he had all the money in the world and he ended up pulling the project because he couldn't get it complete because the features like product scope just kept expanding and expanding. I don't know if I've got the right example, but it's just a classic case of it doesn't matter how much money you've got. If you don't put a limit on scope, you will never get it done and you will not fit within the budget. Well, and that's interesting, too, because I have had projects where they came to me with a project scope and a dollar amount, and it was totally doable. But then we get two weeks in, I get something up that they can see, and immediately, we want these three other features on that. And and you're, you're right in there with, in the middle of that mess, where it's like, yeah, all of a sudden, it's beyond the budget. And, you know, that's you right. have to stick to your guns. And, yeah, I mean, it, it's human. It's, it's normal. Yeah, yeah programming, programming projects are kind of like a house. doesn't matter if it's a brand new house or a hundred-year-old house. There's always something to do, something to add, something to refactor or whatever the case. You know, your work's never done. You're going to build a deck onto my house, Dave? Dude, if you bring your house over to my house, I'll do it for <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> thing because like I heard last episode that it was all about the power tools and everything, and I don't have any to speak of. But I've got a great place for a deck, Dave. You can fly down to Sydney, bring the wood. Yeah, so for those wondering, I just built a deck. You know, I've expanded my programming capabilities out into the real world and built a deck extension. Now, we're not and talking it, a pitch deck, right? We're talking a deck deck. Yeah, like a actual wooden you can walk on deck. And, um, you know, I gave it the weight test, so I stood on it, and it didn't collapse, <laughs> so we are good. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, the, the dealing with clients is probably, I think, one of the hardest. And when I say clients, anyone who has anything to do with you receiving money is a client. So if you're in a if you're in a big enterprise company and you don't deal with clients, like you, you're only dealing with some person who's in charge of you, they are your client or whoever the the group or person is that your software is going to as the end user, they are the client. That that ability and skill of dealing with clients from that point of view, clients of your work, is a really key one that is almost more important than programming ability. I would posit. Not, yeah, not I agree. Book, but, but very, very important. 
Yeah, you know, we have uh, Scrum Masters and QA teams. I work for Sage Software, so, you know, we're a big 13,000-employee company. Uh, But just even at the small level, dealing with the, uh, you know, internal team, you know, you really have to, you know, I agree with you 100%. You really have to kind of treat them like clients. You know, sell your idea or sell your way of doing something is the better way, even if there is a standard or a preferred way, you know, because every situation is different. Every program is different. And, you know, sometimes the standard or the whatever someone has called the, you know, this is the way we do something or this is the way something is done. Sometimes, you know, you had to deviate from that. Uh, and, you know, pitch them a new or a different way of thinking or doing something. So, you know, even internally, I have to sell my idea to the team uh, to say, look, this is what you have always done. But I'm telling you, this other way is better. And it's going to overall reduce our technical debt or reduce our gaps in communication, whatever the case. So, you know, definitely agree with you 100% there. Yeah, well, yeah. and I've worked for plenty of companies, too, where you had the stakeholder and they'd come in and they would basically give you a list of things they wanted done and you'd tell them how long it was going to take and they'd start trying to negotiate that budget because they wanted it all. And yeah, it's it's like, look, you can't defy the laws of physics. The people we have on our team can only get so much work done. And, um, you know, adding people to the team will initially at least slow us down. So, you know, where do you make the trade-off? Like, where where do you, you know, where are you looking at this and saying, yeah, you know, budget, time budget, and features, you know, how do you balance all those things? Yeah, and... Do you ever have issues crop up in production that you don't see in development? Do you even know how your app is performing in production? Performance, errors, and analytics to figure out where your app is bogging down are important to keep an eye on. You could try one of those error tracking apps, but why not use a tool that does it all? Try Datadog. Datadog tracks performance, collects data on your errors, and provides you with the information you need to improve your user's experience and fix bugs without having to log into the production server and dig through the logs. What if my app spans across multiple servers and services, you ask? Datadog seamlessly collects metrics from every corner of your application, including services like Amazon AWS and systems like Redis. So whether you want a clear view into your application's performance, need to be notified of new errors, or to keep track of your application across various services you use, use Datadog. If you go to devchat.tv slash Datadog and start a free trial, they'll send you a free Datadog t-shirt. And features, you know, how do you balance all those things? Yeah. And part of, you know, the, the underlying reason of, again, actually writing this book is, I couldn't find a, a real resource out there that approached it from both sides of view, both points of view. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of books out there on on how do you do Agile or how do you do Scrum or or the flip side, you know, how do you um, actually program this thing? You know, what's the actual technical aspects of it? So this book from that point of view, it's not going to have a lot of Ruby code in it. You know, it's not going to be a technical book. But it is going to attempt to create a common ground between the client and the developer so that if both of those parties read the book, 
then they can have a mutual understanding on, well, where are we going to put the time and resources that we have to, to build this thing? And why is doing this thing important? You know, if you've ever wanted a reason to convince your client on why you should test or why you should automate the build pipeline or, you know, why are we fixing bugs right now instead of developing a new feature? That's, they're the questions that I'm trying to answer with this book. Completely selfish, self selflessly, no, selfishly. <laughs> you know, I'm doing this so that I can give it to my customers and say, hey, please read this. Because my team of, you know, 20 something developers constantly hits these discussion points with our clients. And, you know, our clients are great. We teach them all of this, but we do it in a very bit by bit manner and educating them and, and helping them learn and, and figuring it all out. It's going to be a lot easier when I have a book to give it to so that's one thing that I want to dive into then is, you know, you talked about testing and, you know, solving some of the technical problems like bugs as opposed to working on features because they, they look at those things as things that suck down time and that don't ultimately give you the features that your, that your customers want. And if you give that's the customers right. what they want, they make more money and then they can pay that's you right. more, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's a virtuous cycle. So why isn't yes. it a virtuous cycle? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the maxims in the book is uh, test adequately. <clears throat> what does that mean? Yeah, so one of the things in the book is test adequately as opposed to, you know, test everything. So I'm still deciding on the title, whether adequately is correct. Maybe pragmatically is another one that could be used or sufficiently. But when developers first hit BDD or TDD, the usual reaction is, what? You know, that's like four times the code. Then after a little while, they go, oh, my God, this is the best thing ever. And they go from doing no BDD, TDD to making sure that um, expect one plus one to equal two, right? Making sure that Ruby language is actually doing what it needs to do. And then after a while, after they've done that for a bit, they'll have like 3,000 tests that are testing the very basic user model that just has a first name and last name. Mm -hmm. And then they try and change something and they notice that 400 tests break and they realize, oh, hang on a sec, there's a balance here. There's a level of TDD and BDD or there's a level of tests, even if you're not doing it as driven, you know, that gives you confidence in the application being built. That doesn't mean you have to have thousands and thousands of tests. And I think in the previous episode in the Rails 510 pretty sure it was you two that were chatting about, uh, you know, whether or not you BDD or TDD because, you know, sometimes it's quite hard to get your head around it and how much do you test? So the other thing to, to realize when you're writing tests is that someone's paying for that code. You know, someone is sitting there and taking money out of their pocket to pay you to write those tests. So the tests that you write should be the tests that adequately check the system to make sure that in the future when you add a new feature or you change something, you're going to catch that change as broken whatever it is you're testing. You don't want to go and test every last little piece of the product because you don't need to. You know, you don't need to test that Rails knows how to do a presence validation if you've written the line of code. Unless it's absolutely critical to your application that that piece of data is there, 
you know, sometimes. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a really bad example because these days with something like the shoulda gem, you can just do it validates presence of name, right? And it's one line of code and, and you're done. So it's a bit of a contrived example. But, you know, you don't have to test every last piece of application code. What you need to test is, you know, make sure the happy path is right. And by happy path, I mean uh, when you start using the application and everything's going right, you know, what the user wants to do can be done without any real edge cases. And then underneath that, some model tests around the key uh, bits of code that actually work and do things and some maybe controller tests if you have a particularly complex controller. But if you have a particularly complex controller, you're actually have got another problem, which is your controllers shouldn't really be doing that much anyway. So maybe split that out and remove the need for a test because most controllers just need to load a resource and present a page. So. You know, there's there's aspects of that testing which you can do that will produce a level of testing that gives you confidence in the application. And then don't go too much past that. Now, I don't want every every person listening to this podcast to go, well, Michael said I don't have to test, so I'm not testing it. That's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the point. And we don't do that reinteractive. You know, when whenever we release a piece of software, we do it via a pull request and we have more than one or at least one other developer go through it and code gets rejected if it doesn't have a covering test, right? But that doesn't mean that every piece of code has its own test. It means that the test that is written exercises all of the code that is being pushed. Yeah, so I think this is a good point to just go ahead and set a golden standard on how long your test should be running in order to have adequate testing. So I think one hour, you know, two hours maybe, if your code doesn't, if your test case doesn't take that long to run, that you don't have enough tests. Does that sound about right? <laughs> <laughs> At least two or three hours, yeah. You've got to make these CI companies earn their living, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. That's, that should be the goal of every person. Yeah, we, long yeah, running tests. I am looking for a, sponsors, so. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> long running tests is actually, you know, a code smell in of itself because if you can't run the tests, how can you be confident that they work? And if if they take so long to run that you couldn't be bothered running them because you know it basically makes the fan on your laptop melt, then why why have them at all if you're not going to use them? So that's the whole point about testing adequately. And the the ideal project is a test suite that runs, you know, I mean, you're not gonna get it down to seconds on a large project, right? But minutes, tens of minutes maybe enough time where you've you've done your thing, you run your test suite on the whole application while you go and get your beverage of choice and then come back and it's done or almost done and you can already see some failures. Uh, you know, that's that is a reasonable a reasonable amount of time. And if you've got enough tests around it, you know, some one of the most recent applications that we pushed was a whole sort of booking management system for the for a uh, a festival that's a non profit. And the the test suite in that took about fifteen minutes to run. It had a one and a half thousand tests or something written into it on a project that was about six months old or five months old, and that worked really well. And we'd get new developers in, and they could get up to speed rapidly. And and by new developers, I mean me. I actually did coding on that application, and I had to jump in and quickly figure it out so I could write my feature, run the tests. I broke everything, and I went, okay, good. Well, I just broke everything. Well, how do I fix that? And, then I can fix it. That's what testing adequately is all about. 
Now, we've been talking about these discussion points, and you keep bringing up another point that I want to hit on for a minute, and that is um, you keep saying confident, like you're confident in the code or confident software. That's what confident software is all about. Like, what is the idea behind confident software? Yeah, I do use that word a lot. Look, the reason I use the word confident in that is you could think of money as an idea backed by confidence. Uh So if I give you a $100 note, the only reason that you'll give me $100 worth of value is that you're fairly sure that if you take that $100 note somewhere, you can get $100 worth of value from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And when you have a confident approach or if you've got an application that's producing software that makes people using it confident, you know, it's not constantly buggy, it's got most of the features they think they want to use. You know, it's well tested. It's maintained. That thing is going to attract more resources into it. So, and this is almost self-evident. You know, it's it's one of those ideas that once you explain it, people go, "Oh, yeah, well, that makes sense." Because if if I've built an application that is fairly bug-free, for example, and this is one of the one of the maxims is you know. Um, prefer stability over features. If I've built an application that doesn't have all of the features, but the ones it does have work really, really well, and there's no bugs, then you're more likely to attract more users because they come in and they go, oh yeah, I can see that you know this is this is doing exactly what I want for this bit. It'd be nice if I could do that, but this bit works really well. They're more likely to use it for that bit. However, if you're just focusing all on features and you develop 100 features, 20 of which are buggy in some way or 50 of which have some edge case that blows up the whole thing, your users, all of them are going to hit that 20 or 30 that are broken. I mean, they'll, they'll almost magically gravitate to it. So then you're providing a bad user experience for everyone who's landing on your website. They're not likely to stick around and play with it. So you want an application that people have confidence about that they know it's going to work. Even the new developer that comes in, they sit down and they start programming. The first thing they do, they set up the application in the readme and they're told then run the tests as the first thing that they should do in the readme to see that they pass. And if they do that and there's like a thousand tests there and they're all green, well, they're going to have confidence that this project's well-maintained, got a minimal amount of technical debt, that you know their contributions are going to be also tested and they'll be able to develop on it. So this whole idea of confidence is what, I'm pushing with the book and the whole concept of how do we get teams and stakeholders working together to produce something that they can all be confident about is going to achieve the goals of what they want to do. I like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, well, I'm, not a, <laughs> I'm not a big book reader, but, you know, everything that you said, you know, I'm on board with. So I might have to check out your book. Yep. I hope so. Yeah. Now I have a time, uh, a hard stop in about 10 minutes. Um, yep. So I do want to get into the mentorship apprenticeship ideas that you have before sure. we, um, before we wrap up. And I'm really curious, how do you teach this confident software um, philosophy to, or these practices to new people? So in my company, the way that we've done it is we have a lot of policy that we build up around the company. And a lot of this 
these ideas in the books, in the book that I'm running, is assumed knowledge within Reinteractive. And that's another reason why I'm writing it, uh, to make sure that people understand this within my company as they're coming on board, because it will be part of what they need to do when they come on board. But we have a lot of policy that we teach and, and help people with. But outside of that, the way I plan to teach it is, you know, I'll write a book on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm writing the book and then getting people to read it and understand it. The best way, though, to teach this idea of, of confident software is, is each of these maxims. Once a developer does it and tries it, they'll find out that their life and their work is easier. And it pretty much teaches itself. The, the main point of the book, in fact, it starts off with talking about how it's the, the hidden rule or the thing that you're not aware of that usually catches you out the most. You know, uh, it's, not the, it's not the problems you know about that cause you problems. You know what I mean? It's the yeah. ones that you don't know about that blow up in your face. And that's why I start off with desired features exceed any budget because that is the first thing that goes wrong in every software project. The people that own the money go, well, we're out of money. And we need to launch, but you need to have all of these features. So if we can teach that up front to our developers, then they're going to be more likely to push back on making the background more blue or making the background configurable via a picker or whatever, right? So whatever's going to be that makes it more efficient. So that's how I'd, I'd want to teach that. But yeah, I mean, from a, are, you, are you also talking from more of a broader view? How would I get more developers? Yeah. So... Two things we're doing there is uh, we actually run something called the Install Fest, and and that's at railsinstallfest.org. And we've put about 1,200 people through that over the last three years, and it's a free service. People come along. We've had baggage handlers from the airport to pharmacists to computer science people. We've had all sorts of people. In fact, next week, I think we're doing on Wednesday one at the University of South Australia, and it was put up on their board that we're doing one there, and it was sold out in like, three hours and uh, so much so that we're having to fly in developers into Adelaide to deliver this thing because it's during the day and our normal mentors can't make it because they're at work. So the install fest gets people to, we help them set up a Ruby on Rails development environment on their laptop. And before the end of the install fest, everyone has written their own blog in Rails, you know, just like the original DHH video Mm -hmm. and they write their own blog and then they publish it live and they've written working web software. And by the end of the event, they have a URL that's live on the internet that they can visit on their phone and they can see their own application running. And it it absolutely blows people's minds. So we've been doing this for a few years now and that's been fantastic. And we've got about 1,200 participants. And uh, then we have other aspects like our development hubs where we do things in the evening and you can come along and sit down with a programmer who's more experienced and do sort of ad hoc mentoring or ad hoc apprenticeship, like what Obi was talking about. So that's how we've been pushing along that line. And then we plan to release a training program as well at Reinteractive where we get people that have gone through these install fest and development hub activities. Uh, we will be teaching them a very practical approach to software development using our own development team as as mentors and things like that, which hopefully will be coming out later this year. But yeah, that's that's how I plan to increase the pool of developers worldwide. That's really awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. All right, well, yeah, the, no, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I 
pretty much finished on that. So. Okay. Well, uh, then I'm going to... This episode is sponsored by Compose.io. Databases are arguably the most difficult part of the stack to manage. The last thing you want is to wake up at 4 a.m. because the database failed and you have no backups. Compose has all that covered for you, so rest assured that your database is fast, reliable, and always on. It's production-ready cloud databases on AWS and GCP for SoftLayer. So go check them out. You can pick from nine databases, including MongoDB, Elasticsearch, Redis, RethinkDB, MySQL, and one of the latest, ScyllaDB, which is a fast drop-in replacement for Cassandra. All databases come with guaranteed RAM, IOPs, and CPU that auto-scale. Automatic daily and on-demand backups, high availability nodes, security you can count on with, with private VLAN, IP whitelisting, SSH and SSL, two-factor authentication, and much more. Deploy your database in minutes and they'll take care of all of the administrative tasks like patches and upgrades. Setup is fast and easy, so go try them out for 30 days free at compose.com slash devchat. Pretty much finished on that. So. Okay. Well, uh, then I'm going to push us to picks. I hate cutting these shows off short, but <laughs> we can always do another one. Yeah, we, we definitely should. Not uh, not at 5 a.m. <laughs> okay. We'll see what we can do. Um, Dave, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, sure. So my first pick is RailsAssets.org. So it's rails-assets.org if you've never used it. It's uh, been featured in a couple of my recent Drift and Ruby episodes, but it's basically where you can um, add your JavaScript libraries right into your gem file, and it'll automatically you know, kind of manage them for you, lock the gem versions, and you can just simply and easily add in different uh, JavaScript libraries into your Rails application. So this is probably going to be less useful once Rails 5.1.0 comes out with the whole yard management. But until then, and for legacy applications, it's a pretty great thing. And my second pick is Bacon Pancakes. I recently made Bacon Pancakes over the weekend with Bacon Bits. If you've never done it, or you know, you can even use fresh bacon, uh, it is amazing. Just crumble up some bacon and put it right there on your pancakes as they're being cooked. It's awesome. <laughs> have you so ever good. have you ever seen that internet image that says "Should I use bacon?" It's like a flowchart, and and everything <laughs> basically ends up at yes. It's hilarious. <laughs> No, but I have to say I can agree with that. Google it. Yeah, Google it. It's really good. All right. I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. Um, The first pick that I have, um, I have been on this search for a new CRM. Funny that Michael was talking about building a CRM. Um, All CRMs suck. It's just a fact of life, I've decided. Yeah. But um, I I moved off of one to another to another. I was originally using Rise. It sucks. Um, I moved over to 17 hats, which is great, except that it doesn't have API integration, so you can't automate anything, so it sucks. Um, and I recently moved over to a new one called Contactually, and I used it before, but it was really just an annoying way to realize that I wasn't keeping up with anyone because it re- reminds you to keep in contact with people. And so I quit using it a long, long time ago. But it turns out it has all the a lot of the automation features I want, and it connects with Zapier, so... Um, it sucks less. So anyway, um, I'm liking that one. If you have any other CRMs that don't suck, um, they probably suck. Uh, but you can just let me know. Um, I'm, I'm willing to try other ones. Um, but yeah, so far this one has not pissed me off. Um, but it usually takes me about a month or so. And then I'm like, 
It doesn't do this <laughs> one thing that I just need. So anyway, we'll see how it goes. Um, but yeah, I picked 17 hats and then, yeah, it was that and the fact that you can't like uh, mass assign people to a, an email workflow or anything. Um, both of those things kind of did it in for me. So um, Contactually doesn't do invoicing and 17 hats does and it integrates with QuickBooks, but I can live with that. I can go over to QuickBooks and send invoices that way. So anyway, um, so yeah, I'm going to pick that. And then I'm also going to just shout out um, Ruby Remote Conf. I believe this will come out right before early bird tickets end. Uh, early bird tickets are $50. Um, regular price tickets are $75. So if you haven't gotten a ticket yet, you probably want to get one this week. Um, and, uh, if my timing is off, then I'm real sorry if you missed them, but anyway, um, yeah, so those are my picks. Michael, what are your picks? Awesome. Yeah, actually on Ruby remote conference, it's interesting because we, our whole company is remote only. So a lot of, uh, a lot of benefit working remotely. It'll be an interesting conference. Um, my picks. So first one is uh, a little free app that we built that I'd love for people to play with a bit more. It's called Top Secret and uh, T-O-P-S-E-K-R dot I-T. And it basically does one-time password sharing. So if you've ever had the problem where a client needs to send you a password or an API key and they put it in email and then send it to you and that goes into the Zendesk, you know, uh, support <laughs> system, is, is there for life because you can't edit anything, uh, Top Secret is for you. It basically takes your data, it verifies you via either Google OAuth or via an email link. And then once verified, you can send a secret to somebody. And what the system does is it encrypts the secret with a decryptable process, saves that encrypted version to the database, and then sends the only copy of the key to the recipient. So we don't store the key to decrypt it, only the recipient gets it. And then when the recipient views it, as soon as they view it, it gets deleted from the system, which means you can also spot man-in-the-middle attacks or anything like that. If someone's got their email open and already views it, it gets deleted. So uh, we use that a lot in our support and, uh, yeah, just plugging it. It's a, it's a fun little thing that we built and it really solves a need. The next one that I wanted to say was um, railsdiff.org. So if you're ever doing a Rails upgrade, we use this all the time. And it basically lets you pick the from version of Rails and the to version of Rails, and then gives you a patch file, which effectively a visual patch file showing you what you can do to update it or what files you need to change. And all those system files where application.rb has changed slightly, it, it shows you the difference. And you can just quickly go in and edit that and get your application up to what needs to be to for the new version, which is an absolute godsend when you're trying to get that done. And the last one, I guess, isn't really a pick. It's more of a plug on the mail gem. I mentioned it briefly earlier, but I am looking for someone who, you know, is perhaps in an area or in a situation where they they don't think they're going to get much of a chance to get involved in a large software project, but really want to, or want to take their uh, development to the next level. I'm actually looking at getting the mail gem, some resourcing from my company to really bring it up to date, perhaps even releasing a commercial version that, you know, hooks up to I don't know, exchange or whatever. But I want to get someone involved in getting the issues and uh, pull requests back down to a sane level and give them money for it and work with me directly on it. So if there's a budding developer out there in a, in perhaps in a country that 
they don't feel that they'd get a chance elsewhere, please figure out how to get in contact with me and get in contact with me. That's your uh, test. And uh, show me what you can do. And, and yeah, we'll go from there. Bonus points if they use the mail gem to send you an email about it. Yeah, and if you if you send me the code that you wrote the email to send the email in to me, and yeah, that that's actually a good idea. All right, um, we'll go ahead and wrap this show up. Thanks for coming, Michael. Yeah, it was great. I loved it. Yeah, well, it was fun to talk, and yeah, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while since uh, the mail gem made life easier. So, <laughs> you're welcome. All right, well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up, and we'll talk to everyone next week. All right. Talk See to you ya. later. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.